Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. We will be talking with the president of the Human Animal Bond Association. Hey, listen, if it wasn't for the Human Animal Bond, we wouldn't even have pets. For that matter, we wouldn't have zoos. He'll explain. Associate Executive Vice President of the American Veterinary Medical Association and Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr. Gail Golab. How are you? Oh, it's good to see you, Steve. I'm doing great. Hope you are as well. That's always good to see you. You know, uh, something happened. The pandemic hit. Right. Yep. And at that point in time, people couldn't easily go to their veterinarian. And we had this thing called the Internet, and people were doing what has been done to some extent in human health care for a while, these virtual visits. All right. Then the pandemic ends. And I'm into the fact that it's ended. I think it's a fact. Uh, And people still want that. And there are all of these direct-to-consumer, third-party operators out there saying, hey, you buy this pet insurance and we'll give you free over-the-internet care, telemedicine or telehealth, for your pet. And all of these other companies coming out of left field, right field, from there, from there, are offering this. Is that a good idea for people who have pets? I think there should be some concerns. Yeah, so I think um, it's important to understand we've been actually been doing telemedicine with pets for a very long time, and it preceded the pandemic. And so, um, you know, it was just part of the communication that we had with clients about their animals. And I think the key word is clients. Um, They were individuals, pet owners that we knew, and they knew us, and we knew their pet. Um, and so we had that relationship. So we could feel really comfortable um, about providing information and pro- providing advice and that kind of thing. So this is not new. It's something we've been doing for a very long time. Um, what has changed is a situation where this is now being offered without that kind of relationship having previously been established. And that's a concern because it's really important that we know that pet owner and that we know that their pet in order to make sure that we're providing good information for them and providing services in a way that they can actually help their pet. All right, so let me let me back up a little bit. There is something called a veterinary client patient relationship. You guys call it VCPR for short. Why is having that relationship so important? Well, I mean, think about what happens when you take your animal into the veterinary clinic, right? Um, We will do a physical exam of that animal. Um, It may be for a wellness visit, in which case we're expecting a relatively normal exam, but sometimes we will find things and we obviously take care of them when we find them. But at the same time that we're examining the pet, we're getting to know you. And so we learn about what your expectations is for how that pet is going to be cared for. In some cases, how we're using that pet. And so, for example, you may have a service animal or a working dog of of another type. Mm -hmm. Um, And so understanding that relationship helps us set up a care plan for that pet. And that relationship then serves as the basis in making sure that you get services moving forward that are appropriate for you and for your pet. You also know about that pet. Right. So you know the history because you have the record. Right. You've been going to that veterinarian. And even if you just changed veterinarians, well, the record from the previous veterinarian is brought over, we hope, right? Right. So the veterinarian has record of everything that's ever been done for or with that pet. All the medications, 
all of the medical history. Oh, that dog had pancreatitis seven years ago. Well, pancreatitis inflammation of the pancreas is more likely to happen again if it happened once, as one example. All of that history is right there. These third-party operators or direct-to-consumer operators, and I guess we should better define what they are, and we'll do that in a moment, they have no idea. They've never met you. They've never met your pet. All they're seeing for the first time on a Zoom or whatever platform they use, often their own platforms, it's the first time. Right. And I think the other thing, important thing is, is that you talk about the examination of the pet. Um, we do get a lot of information from that visual examination, right? But we also learn a lot of things through the other senses. And so obviously when we're touching that pet. You smell the pet? Right, exactly. We what? smell that pet. Well, yeah. actually, you do. We and, do. And, yeah, and it sounds crazy, but explain a kidney disease or something right. where exactly. that smell actually it talk about that. It does. You know, things like kidney disease, certain gastrointestinal diseases like parvo, um, they have very distinctive smells associated with them. They actually um, do. Even ear infections. So how do you do that in the Internet? You can't, I don't and think that's so. that's that's part of the concern um, with with only having that kind of a connection. You can use telemedicine very effectively once you've established that relationship with the patient um, and with that animal's owner. Um, but getting that initial visit is absolutely critical. And then after that, so for example, if an animal has a chronic disease. Um, telemedicine can be amazing. It's a wonderful tool because we can keep in touch more frequently, more easily, and more conveniently for the client yes. and for the pet and make sure that we're following that disease more closely and it allows us to make corrections in places where otherwise that might not happen. So telemedicine can be really, really good, but the quality of the care that's delivered using telemedicine really depends upon making sure you have that relationship first. So I want to talk about the really, really good part because that's important. So the American Veterinary Medical Association, Dr. Gail Golab, are not denying that there's a need for it and that it can be really incredibly helpful. So let's give some examples. Let's say you're 172 years old and getting to the veterinarian is a challenging thing to do. Or there are some places in America, not necessarily in Chicago, but some places in America where there are veterinary deserts, essentially. Right. And actually in Chicago, that's kind of true, too, in places, certain neighborhoods. You physically can't get, but I'm talking about the middle of our uh, Iowa or something. It's a two-hour drive to the closest veterinarian. Also, we're all busy. So you've got to drive, oh, Tuesday, there's band practice for that kid. <laughs> and on, on Tuesday, oh, I've got to get the other kid to baseball practice. And right. we're all very, very busy. So this can be more convenient as well. Also, getting in to see a veterinarian, I know, and we could talk about this, the American Veterinary Medical Association and many others are working on this, but the reality is getting in to, right now, see a veterinarian can be challenging in person. However, that's another advantage, I think, of telehealth. Would you disagree with any of those things? Yeah, no, totally agree with those things. And I think another thing that's important to understand is that whereas all telemedicine is telehealth, not all telehealth is telemedicine. Oh, we've got to stop it there because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so we will explain what Dr. Golab just said. All of us aren't all of us unless we're all of us or whatever you just said. And we will do that when we come back. 
on WGN. Dr. Gail Golab is here from the American Veterinary Medical Association. We're talking about something that is being marketed to you if you're a pet parent. And what I think Gail Golab is saying, and I would agree very, very strongly, think twice before you go uh, online for that veterinary medical care, because it might not be what you think it is. Is that the bottom yeah. line? Yeah. I mean, and, and again, I think um, using telemedicine is great, um, and it is something that you should take advantage of if that's something that the, the veterinarian you regularly sees offers in their practice. Um, but using it within that relationship and using it with your veterinarian that you know and who knows you and, and who knows your pet, that is the safest um, and most effective way to use that particular modality. And so we certainly encourage the use of telemedicine, but just with your veterinarian. And I am concerned that you've got all these companies out there left and right that see, frankly, a financial niche and say, oh, here's something we can do. And they often offer it, not always, sometimes it's standalone, but sometimes these third parties are saying, oh, you bought that pet insurance, so now you get some telehealth or telemedicine for a lower cost or for free or whatever, a certain number of times, then you'll sign up with us. Uh, And that's fine, except so many concerns, and you're expressing some of them, and we'll talk about some more of them. It's the kind of care you're getting from these parties that have no idea about anything having to do with you or your pet. So a question that I have for you. Telemedicine is telehealth or telehealth is telemedicine? What did you say before the break? So all telemedicine is telehealth, but not all telehealth is telemedicine. All right. You lost me. And so well, what I mean by that is telemedicine is when you are providing care for a specific patient and you're developing a particular treatment plan. Um, There are other types of telehealth that are available. So, for example, you might call one of the telehealth services and just be looking for some general advice or some general information and that kind of thing. And that can also work very, very well. Um, It's not going to be information that's necessarily specific to your pet. But say you need just general information about diabetes in cats or you want to know something about renal disease in cats or you want to know something about inflammatory bowel disease in dogs, you can call some of these companies and get general information like that and they can answer some general questions and it can be really helpful. Um, We also have individuals or companies that offer what's called teletriage. And all that is is... You call them, you provide them information about the concern that you have with your pet, and they can help you decide with what urgency you need to see your veterinarian. And so basically it's, no, this is something that can wait 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever, or no, you need to go to the emergency clinic right now. Um, And again, services that provide that kind of information can also be very helpful. Um, Often teletriage services like that are actually associated with the veterinary clinic. Um, and so your veterinarian may offer that kind of a service through a third party. And but that's there are, okay. Yeah, but there are other companies that offer direct medicine um, to your pet. And so there will be the ones that will offer prescriptions and that kind of thing online and then deliver them to your pet. And those are the ones where if you're going to be doing medicine, medical treatment for your pet, you really want to have done that physical examination and you want to know that you want your veterinarian to know you and to know your pet. All right. So here's an opportunity uh, for you to dispel some myths, if you will. And, and one is, okay, I am desperate to get into my veterinarian. I cannot do that. So I'm going to call 
one of these providers because I want my pet to be better, right? I mean, we all agree that's a good thing, right? Uh, and the argument made by some, well, they're not perfect, maybe. They've not seen your pet before. And some care is better than no care at all. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so my response to that is some care is not better when no care when it's the wrong care. And so one of and the what, what, when you're a veterinarian, what's the first thing you sign and say? It's do no harm, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that's the concern here, right? You know, and I think it's it's particularly challenging. And everybody's used to to doing. Most people at this point post COVID are used to doing telehealth or telemedicine appointments with their physicians, right? One of the big differences, it's one thing when you can have a conversation with your physician and tell them what's wrong. It's something else when you have to interpret what's going on with an animal, even if it's a pet that you know very well. um, Clinical signs, symptoms can look very similar and be caused by very different things. And studies studies have also shown, I didn't mean to interrupt, that actually... People, even as well as we know our dogs, cats can be tricky altogether, uh, often don't get it right. Right. Yeah. They don't, they're not even seeing the same signs or symptoms in the first place. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And, and pet owners, they, they care about their pets and they really mean well. But you're absolutely right. They don't always get it right. And sometimes, even for a veterinarian, there's a reason that we touch the animal and that we do the physical examination and that we order diagnostics because we need that additional information in order to get it right. But it goes deeper than that. All right, so one of these third-party operators, many of them do this, say, I am going to prescribe an antibiotic. Or they say, I'm going to prescribe, you name the drug, I'm not going to name a drug, and that drug happens to be a restricted drug in that particular state because they don't know that that's the case. Or they say, here's a drug, not knowing, and the pet owner maybe forgot, that previously that dog or cat or any other pet had an adverse reaction to it years ago. And that's why your veterinarian hasn't been prescribing it for years. Uh, All those things and much more. Yeah, and I think you raise a really, really good point. And, and, you know, obviously um, veterinarians, veterinary medicine right now are very interested in making sure that we get the use of technology, including telemedicine, right? Um, But we're also very concerned about things like antibiotic resistance. And so we're being very diligent, just like your own physician is being very diligent about making sure we're using antibiotics when we need to use them. And and when we do need to use them, we're using the right one. And so in order to make sure of that, we need additional information. And again, that additional information comes from that in-person physical examination. And so we want to make sure that we're not prescribing things when they don't need to be prescribed or that we're prescribing them blindly. Um, It's also the case that if you don't prescribe the right one, it's not going to be effective. And so we want to make sure we don't have delays either in diagnosis or delays in treatment either. All right. So here's the thing. Pets cannot speak for themselves and neither can babies. Right. Talk about that because that's an argument that's often made that, well, I can go and do telehealth with my little six-month-old. But can you really? And even under the circumstances that you can, we understand our own babies 
a little better, at least according to the research, than we understand cats. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that you raise that, Steve, because actually um, back in about 2017 or so, uh, the American Telemedicine Association worked with the American Academy of Pediatrics to develop guidelines um, for the use of telemedicine in pediatric medicine. Um, and at that particular point in time, and they reaffirmed this a couple of years later, um, they indicated that they did not recommend that telemedicine be used for children under the age of two that did not already have a relationship with a provider, hmm. or where like there wasn't a, about. a very special secondary yeah. referral, right? Yeah. So they recognize some of the same challenges that we recognize when we're trying to do that kind of thing for our animal patients. All right. Well, there's more to talk about, and I think this is a huge topic as we continue to move into 2024. Because if you have a pet, you are probably, typically, you know it, but maybe not even marketed by these companies saying, we are going to do this for you. And it may sound good, but there are some warnings, which I hope make some sense to all of you. We'll continue with those warnings when we come back with Dr. Gail Golab of the American Veterinary Medical Association next. Cats are kind of tricky. You never know that they're not feeling well. They mask illness. They mask pain incredibly well. And if you happen to go to a veterinary meeting, one of the hot topics Well, how do you know your cat is in pain and what to do about it if the cat is in pain? And we're not only talking about, though greatly, we are talking about arthritis. We're also talking about other types of pain in cats as well. Well, in fact, that will be the topic of an upcoming symposium uh, held in conjunction with North Carolina State University, College of Veterinary Medicine Feline Health Center, and the nonprofit as well, two nonprofits. The other is the Every Cat Health Foundation. Uh, And you don't have to go to North Carolina State for this. Kara Burns will be here next week. She will explain what this is all about and how you can attend, yes, at North Carolina State University or attend virtually. She'll explain that, as I said, next week. She is the Chief Veterinary Officer of the American Veterinary Medical Association for how many years? Um, I've actually been with the association now a little over 28 years. That's the American um, Veterinary Medical So let, let me ask you a very technical question. Is 28 years with the AVMA like 50 years in dog years? How does that work? <laughs> Probably something like that, Steve. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, I was actually in private clinical practice um, for several years before I worked for the association. And so um, I had the pleasure of being people's personal veterinarian. And yeah. so I'm very familiar with how important these interactions and our evaluation of our patients is to making sure we get good outcomes. Which is what we're talking about. And it's a thing now where you are, if you want to buy a car. It's not only if you want to buy pet insurance or something that's pet related. Literally, if you buy a car, there's one company I'm thinking of that, okay, you get uh, power steering and whatever comes with the car. But one of the things you get is actually pet insurance and also the opportunity to do, I don't know, uh, telehealth. Have I got that right right now? Uh, telehealth right. with depending one of what, what was that <laughs> i said depending upon what what services you're looking for yeah but, but, but you yeah. have an opportunity to do that and it sounds great if my pet is sick now i get to call 1-800-HELP-MY-PET or whatever it is but it's not so great and we're talking about why this is a bit misleading so who is going to be when you make that call on the other end now the good news 
is it probably is a licensed or certified uh, veterinary technician or a veterinarian. But they may not be from your state. And they may not even be in this country. Now, if they get something wrong, what recourse as a pet parent do you have? So a couple of things. One is I want to make sure that we don't sort of throw everybody under the bus with these offerings, right? Because you'll have pet insurance companies that will offer um, telehealth services, and they can be great, particularly if they're covering telehealth services, telemedicine specifically, that is already being provided by your veterinarian. And so well, if they're sure. talking about that kind of thing, that can be absolutely terrific, teletriage services, that kind of thing. Um, where things become a bit more challenging is that with electronic communication, um, the borders of that communication open considerably. And so it can be really difficult as a pet owner to know who it is on the other end of that phone. And so if you are going to use one of these services, you want to make sure who you know who that individual is, and you want to make sure that you know where they're licensed and that they are licensed in the state where you are located. And the but reason- they're often not. Sometimes they may not be. Yeah. Sometimes they may not. They're supposed to be. Yeah. They are supposed to be. But, but if you're so desperate isn't quite the right word, but determined to help your pet, at that point in time you've made the call, will people back off? So I think that's, when, a, that's a concern. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, I think it's really important to make sure that the individual that you are speaking with is licensed in your state because what that gives you is the ability, if there is a problem, to go back to that state's veterinary medical board and have that investigated. And so that's incredibly important. Um, the other thing that you should really think seriously about is looking for those companies that are associated with your pets veterinarian. So like I had said earlier, a lot of times veterinarians will contract with some of these companies. Um, and so looking for those companies where they do have access to that clinic, to records, et cetera, um, is really the way to go for that rather than kind of going for essentially a cold call or, type situation. Or even better, I agree with what you said, but I suppose one step even better is to do it telehealth conversation with your veterinarian exactly. or a veterinarian in that or technician in that same practice. Yeah, exactly. Because if you're talking to another veterinarian or a veterinary technician in that practice, um, that individual has access to your animal's medical records and the medical records that are in the practice itself, right? So they're going to be complete. So that's different, for example, than something that might be handed to you to take home as general information. You will have that complete medical record of over a period of time in that practice that they will have access to. And again, we've mentioned it, that the data demonstrates you don't remember. I mean, do you really remember everything your doctor told you six years ago and understand it? Well, for our pets, even less likely. And we know that that is the case, but we also know that's really important to help a veterinarian determine what's going on. However, it's even bigger than that. So let's say the complaint is, oh, my cat the last three nights in a row has been getting up at four in the morning just screaming and eventually goes back to sleep. I can't get into my veterinarian. I don't feel that it's an emergency, but maybe it is, and makes one of these calls. Dr. Golab, you are a very good veterinarian. Based on what I just told you, cats screaming at four in the morning, everything then seems okay. 
how do you diagnose? So that would be extremely difficult, Steve, for I'd me to be able to diagnose that of an owner. And, and that would definitely be one of those situations where I would say, you need to make an appointment and I need to see your animals so that I can Im- try to figure out what is going on. Would impossible be even a better way to put it? Because it seems as though there'd be 600 choices, right. literally, right. and you can't ask the cat. And even if you could, you know, how many people have x-ray machines in their kitchen, you know, right. where they can actually see, you know... It's or or maybe you don't know that that cat uh, has a heart condition. How many people at home have a right. stethoscope and can listen if they did to their cat's heart? I mean, there'd be no way. Right. Exactly. So we not only are doing that physical exam, but we're using other instruments to help gather information. And so whether that is an otoscope, um, for example, to look in in your pet's ear, whether that is a stethoscope to listen to its lungs and to its heart, um, or whether that is a blood sample that allows us to get chemical or or blood count information for that animal, um, we're going to make decisions about what those kinds of things are that we need to use. Um, One of the things that I think is really important that we haven't talked about is the important make, importance of making sure that providers are connected. And unfortunately, sometimes what happens when you will use a third-party service like that, and again, there's variation, your veterinarian doesn't always know that you have done that and doesn't always get all of the information back from that provider. And so you can end up in a subscription in a situation where your pet may be on a particular medication. Mm-hmm. You may call one of these companies. They may prescribe something else. They don't know that your pet is on any other medication. You have situations where those medications can interact with each other, sometimes not well. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you may end up on more than one medication. Your regular veterinarian doesn't know that your pet is on that other medication. And so that disconnectedness of providers um, is a real concern for us as well. Yep, understandable. I am going to stick with this issue throughout 2024. This is my issue because I think uh, pet parents greatly don't know when they're made these offers. But then when you hear explanations like the ones we are talking about now, in my experience, people say, yeah, it makes sense. This is not what I'm going to do uh, for my pet because I'm doing something maybe to my pet that is not beneficial. Dr. Gail Golab, it is always great to see you. Thank you so much. Steve, we appreciate the opportunity. And again, telemedicine is a really good thing. It just needs to be used well. Uh, We could have just ended it there. Perfect. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Dr. Patrick Flynn is the president of the Human-Animal Bond Association. That sounds very fancy. And I think it's very important because without the Human-Animal Bond, I don't know why I would have a pet radio show. I don't know why there would be. We're at a veterinary conference now in Orlando, Florida called VMX. This conference would not exist. We wouldn't have zoos even, I don't think, if it wasn't for the Human-Animal Bond. Yeah, it's a great thought and very true. It's neat to think that these giant industries and uh, medical schools and and all of us who became veterinarians and everything all did that based on really a a wonderful connection between living creatures. Um, And not every industry is based on that. So here's the toughest and simple question all at the same time. I've asked you this before. Oh, no. What is the human-animal bond? Oh, boy. Yeah, I think I answer it differently every time, and there's a reason why I do, because um, there is no easy answer. AVMA has a very tight little answer, but I think where I finally landed on this is that um, 
there are thousands of human animal bonds, and and it, they are all defined as they are defined by those who are uh, in them. And so, if it's your connection with your horse, or your uh, you know the plant that you water, or the the fourteen dogs you have, or whatever, that they're, they're all very similar in that they're based on love and understanding and connection and all that. But they are so unique that they, that just cannot be quantified in any easy two or three sentences. And I think that's what really attracts us to this uh, to continue to look at it, like the night 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 sky. Um, it's just beyond complex and understanding, but yet we seem to also understand it at the same time. Uh, it can be with, yes, dogs and cats for sure, and I want to talk about that, but it's way beyond that. Oh. Uh, I know you like to talk about the bond we have with bats. I do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You're the Batman. Yeah, it creeps some people out, and that's always <laughs> kind of fun as well. But uh, we do have a you have a bond with bats uh, out there, whether you know it or not. Because they how's are, that? They are dramatically important to us, mainly from a pollination point of view. They help us with several different plants. There's yeah. no tequila without bats. If you're a tequila bats, drinker, you should say thank you to bats. There's a <laughs> yes. reason why it's on the bottle. Um, and uh, and guano, their poop is uh, is is very important to us. So they are they they are great uh, helpers in in many ways. And, and the more you learn about them, they're they're very gentle creatures. They're wonderful parents. They only have one pup a year, and they're very, very attentive, and they speak to them very softly. They're, they're, they're great ancient creatures, but they're, they're very important. And the, probably the biggest point from an agricultural point of view is they're able to clear the air of all sorts of different types of insects that we don't have to use insecticides to do. Uh, some of which are mosquitoes. Yes. That can spread disease. I mean, imagine, I, I, you probably know the numbers. I've read an average bat can eat fill in the blank how many mosquitoes on a night uh, it's something it is something crazy several hundred thousand to like a million or something i can't i yeah, can't, it's I, can't it's, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the exact number either but it is dramatic and you see them leaving their uh, their environments in the in the dusk and oh my there's some there's some parts of of texas where they actually show up on doppler radar there are so many that come out at sunset and that's is wonderful in austin yeah that austin they have they that did. bridge yeah. and you i've been there tourists can actually yes i've yeah. done that too oh, it's amazing yeah I'm drinking tequilas. I'm watching the bats. <laughs> and not getting bit by mosquitoes. Yeah, so yeah. I mentioned zoos earlier. That's a part of the human-animal bond, too. So here, now think about it. For ever, I mean hundreds of years now, we have had – zoos are very different now than they were then, happily. But we have been featuring wild animals in places that are exotic to where that institution is – People have been going. That is the number one place where people go on the planet, no matter what the culture is. Mm. What attracts people from anywhere, from Japan to New Zealand to the United States to Brazil, to go to zoos? Well, I think it's a, a lot of things. I think part of it is just the exotic nature of seeing something you've never seen before, and the feeling maybe of some of, of travel when you didn't really travel. Um, to to see an elephant probably for the first time or the thousandth time is is just awe inspiring. Sure. Or to see a giant cat, or to see along those lines. So there's there's certainly that. I'd, I'd like to think part of it is also just true appreciation of who these individuals are. Which but is there's tough. something. It's like a magnet. Oh yeah. There's something inside human beings yep. I, I don't know if it's curiosity i don't know what it is that attracts us to see these animals and that is all a part i think of the human animal bond i think it is it's a larger um interpretation of what we know our connection um with the living world mm -hmm. uh, which is those 
people like Jane Goodall and others talk about it all the time, how important we are part of the natural world and therefore we need it, not just because it's fun to go to the zoo, but for our own existence. Which is a part of what the Human-Animal Bond Association is all about, actually, as well, promoting what everything we just talked about. But for most of us, it's dogs and cats. Yeah. And, and you know, when you pick up a story in the popular media about dogs and cats and how dogs and cats are good for us, it's usually, okay, petting a dog is good for you or hearing a cat purr is good for you. And the amazing things, and they are amazing, that dogs and cats do for us, how they benefit, actually, our mental health, our physical health, all of which is true. However, <laughs> you rarely see the other side, yeah. that it works both ways, yeah. that dogs in particular, cats too, though, benefit from living with us. Absolutely. And I would add one word in there, all of which can be true. There are some uh, people who don't, you know, wouldn't find any pleasure at all petting a dog, but most of us who like dogs really get a great um, benefit from that. Um, but yeah, so do they. And there's a small amount of, of data and, and research to show that um, other animals and horses and dogs also have happy neurochemicals released when they bond with us. Um, and it's probably far more complex than we realize. But it's something that I hope we do more and more. I'd like to see more and more at conferences like this um, to be able to start to look more and more through the eyes of the others and to appreciate their reality as well. Human Animal Bond Association's a membership organization. You can go to the website and, among other things, view videos from experts about topics that are much more specific than what we're talking about. Indeed. We've got uh, a good um, choice of, of different topics to, to learn about, probably things you haven't really talked about much or learned about much. Um, uh, homeless uh, pet owners, um, what to do with some of the challenges, unfortunately, with abuse and neglect, kind of the darker side of the bond. Um, therapy dogs, um, all, all sorts of really cool things. Uh, you including, know, cats. Just like, including cats. Including yeah, cats. We have two have good good info on cats. Yeah, that's so important. You can just sit there and binge it as long as you wish. You could probably get a good seven and a half hours out of what we have on the website. And that website is humananimalbond.net. Humananimalbond.net. Dr. Patrick Flynn, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Steve. Secondhand smoke and pets. This has been a topic that's been debated for some time. Well, there's no debate about this. If you happen to have a pet parrot, this is the worst thing. I mean, really, a bird can quickly die, die, as a result of a cigarette cigar or pipe smoke, or for that matter, if you burn food on a Teflon-like surface. I mean, all of that can, and more, uh, because they have such sensitive respiratory systems. But what about dogs and cats? So a recent study came out that it made me think about something I hadn't thought about. It, it Yes, there may be a problem in the environment with inhalation of smoke if you're a cat. But the biggest problem of all is the smoke that is on their coat because cats groom themselves and therefore they're directly taking in these carcinogens. I hadn't thought about that, but that turns out to make a huge difference. Another study, this is all about dogs, and it showed the same thing. Dogs groom themselves as well. And there is a concern about them taking in nicotine directly, ingesting that nicotine when they groom themselves. But what's more, with dogs, and again, I had no idea about this. So if you go somewhere, let's say a friend's house where that friend is smoking cigarettes or a workplace, do workplaces still 
allow cigarette smoking? Not so much, I don't think. But if you come home and your clothes smell like cigarette smoke and the dog is intently sniffing at the clothes, which is what dogs do, they're directly through their nasal passages, taking in that carcinogen as well. And that does have a deleterious impact on their health. Again, something according to, in this case, a British study that I never would have thought about. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, right here on WGN Steve Dale's Pet World.